Good morning. I'm on. <laughs> now you're in trouble. Okay, so today we're going to carry on with our series looking at the seven churches from the book of Revelation. Now, each of these churches, they all faced different challenges. And although it's nearly 2,000 years ago that these churches were written about in Revelation, we can still learn a great deal from them. And I found it really interesting learning about these churches and looking at the history of the early church. And today, we're going to be taking a look at the church of Smyrna, which is the church that suffered. Now, while not specifically mentioned, it's believed that the church of Smyrna was founded by Paul on his first visit to Ephesus in around 53 AD. And it's one of two of the seven churches that doesn't have any criticism. So let's take a quick look at the verse. It's Revelation chapter 2, and we're looking from verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. So while this particular church doesn't have a criticism or a rebuke, it doesn't sound too happy, does it? <laughs> now before we look at this text in a bit more detail, I thought it'd be good to get um, an understanding of the culture and history of Smyrna itself. And understand the atmosphere that these Christians find themselves in. Now Smyrna was an ancient Greek colony, had fertile lands and a large sheltered harbour, which was around 35 miles long, so it was an extremely large harbour. And this allowed Smyrna to become quite wealthy through trade. In 600 BC, Lydia Empire who had very renowned archers. You can find mentions of this in the book of Jeremiah. They raised an army in order to capture the area. But when they attacked Smyrna, the Lydian king was defeated. But they raised another army and tried again. And this time it was different. Now here we go with some funky names. Greek poets, oh, Theognis and Mimnermus, like I was from there. They wrote about the event, and they both said that it was the, due to the pride and degeneracy of the Smyrna citizens that led to its downfall. And the Lydians sacked and destroyed the city, and Smyrna was no more. Then in the 4th century BC, Alexander the Great, he went out on a hunting trip, he came back, he was quite tired, and he went to sleep in his tent. 
And during that sleep, he had a dream about rebuilding Smyrna. So he gathered his generals together, and he laid out a plan for the new city. And the generals went off, and they rebuilt the city. And the city that they built was absolutely amazing. It was truly stunning. It was located at the bottom of a hill that they called Mount Pagos. At the top of the hill was the Acropolis. And that was all surrounded by a ring of temples. Now this led to the city being known as the Crown of Asia. At the bottom of a hill was a golden road. This was laid around the bottom of a hill to make it look like a necklace around a statue. At one end of this road was a temple to Zeus. And at the other end was a temple to Sibyl, who was the mother of the Greek gods. At the bottom of Pagos was a theater, which seated 20,000 people and was the largest in Asia. It also claimed to be the birthplace of the Greek poet Homer, one of seven cities making that claim. Now, Greek philosopher, oh, here we go again, Apollonius of Tiana, he traveled all around the ancient world and he would write, um, if you like, he was an ancient day travel writer. He described Smyrna as the most beautiful city under the sun. And Greek author, oh man, Alias Astrides, I think, he said this about Smyrna. Go from east to west and you will pass from temple to temple and from hill to hill along a street fairer than its name, the Golden Way. Stand on the Acropolis, the sea flows beneath you. The suburbs lie about you. The city, through three lovely views, fills the goblet of your soul. Everything to the very shore is a shining mass of gymnasia, markets, theatres, baths, so many that you hardly know where to bathe. Fountains and public walks, and running water in every home. The abundance of her spectacles, contests, and exhibitions is beyond telling, and the variety of her handicrafts. Of all the cities, this is best suited for those who like to live at ease and be philosophers without guile. Smyrna was one of three cities that had a harbour, one of the other two being Ephesus. But the other two cities' ports became overrun with silt. In fact, it in modern-day terms, it's so overrun with silt that Ephesus is no longer located at the coast. And that left Smyrna as the only functioning trading port. And as a result, it became extremely wealthy. Now, in the year 195 BC, the king of Pergamum, he declared war on Smyrna. He wanted that wealth. But the citizens of Smyrna... I don't really know what to call them. Smyrnites, Smyrnoffs. <laughs> well, they had no faith in their king at all. So they got rid of him. <laughs> and then they appealed to Rome to help them. And they did. 
the Romans saw off the Pergamumese, call them that. <laughs> and then they took control of the city of Smyrna. Now, I, I've mentioned it in previous talks, but the, the Romans are absolute experts of incorporating native cultures to their own. They're just so superb at it. They sometimes eliminate native cultures and just introduce their own, but sometimes they absorb those native cultures. But it's done in a way that increases their chance that there's going to be little resistance and less chance of an uprising against them. So they would give cultural leaders certain liberties, and in return, these cultural leaders would keep their people in order. Now, it's been noted in both the Bible and historical documents that Smyrna had a significant population of Jews. So, of course, the Roman rulers turned to the Jewish leaders to keep order in the city. Now, as Rome continued to take control of other cities in the region, they started a rivalry between the cities, and they all fought for the title of being named the first city of Asia. The leading rivals were Sardis, Ephesus, and Smyrna. But Smyrna had a particular favor with Rome. For some reason, the, the Smyrnans were so keen to please Rome. It was reported that after the Roman army lost a battle, they returned to Smyrna, and the Smyrnite citizens, they took off their clothes in the streets to wrap around the returning Roman soldiers. And in the year 125 BC, it became the first city in the Roman Empire to be given permission to build a temple to the goddess Roma, which essentially is the goddess of Rome. And as a result, the cult of imperial worship was born in Smyrna. Now, a hundred years later, in 25 BC, after Caesar Augustus had introduced the, the idea of emperor worship, Emperor Tiberius, he selected Smyrna out of 11 competing cities to be given permission to build a temple to himself. The result made Smyrna the center of emperor worship in Asia. And people came from across the empire to Smyrna to worship at the temple. Now, emperor worship is quite an odd thing. It was first, I'm saying two words together, first introduced by Caesar Augustus, but it was more an idea than a law. It didn't become law till straight away. Straight away. When it was made law, it also wasn't strictly policed. Magistrates in regions generally thought that it's, it's not really a crime that's worth their effort. What the magistrates were more concerned with was keeping peace in their cities. If the people are happy in their cities, then they do well according to Rome. But what they did do, as a part of this, will do what the citizens want. And Smyrna was a city that was 
really bothered about being known by Rome. And they saw that emperor worship is important. If we worship the emperor, then you know, he'll sort of recognize a bit, a bit better over the others. So they protested to their magistrate. And as a result, the punishments for breaking this law in Smyrna became quite severe. Now, there were some exemptions for the law. The Romans saw the Jews as an ancient monotheistic people. And as a result of this, they became exempt from the law. Now, initially, Christians were also bundled in the same group because Jesus was a Jew. But due to the protests by the Jewish leaders, that changed. And increasingly so after the Temple of Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. Now, evidence suggests that the book of Revelation was written in about 95 AD during the reign of an emperor called Domitian. A pretty nasty fellow. It's widely believed that he persecuted Christians on a large scale. Now, the previous persecution of Christians under Nero, uh, it was said that that's widely restricted to Rome and the surrounding areas of Rome but the second persecution under Domitian is more widespread. Now, he really enforced the law of emperor worship, and he stated that no Christian, once brought before the tribunal, should be exempt from punishment without renouncing his religion. And he also made it so that once you had performed this yearly ritual of emperor worship, of burning incense and saying the phrase, Caesar is Lord, you'd be given a certificate. And without that certificate, you would not be able to work. No one would employ you. You'd also lose certain privileges that being a citizen of Rome brought you. Now, archaeologists have in fact found a certificate from Smyrna. And it states, we, the representatives of the emperor, Serenos and Hermas, have seen you sacrificing. Now, it's also noted that during this time, due to further edicts from Emperor Domitian, that Christians were targeted by citizens as well. And they were frequently abused robbed and beaten. So that's the background of Smyrna and this wonderful <laughs> city that these Christians find themselves in. So now if we look back at Revelation chapter 2, we'll start at verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, Have you ever wondered who this angel was? Each letter starts with it, to the angel. Now, this is a bit of a strange word. Um, and this is, it's mentioned in the Bible as something that's known as a transliteration, as opposed to a translation. And that means that the, the people who sort of converted 
translated it. They took the letters of the word, turned them to the English equivalent of the letters, and then left it there. Uh, the Greek word used here is angelos, hence angel. Now, the direct translation of the word angelos, it means messenger. And it's also the same word that's used to describe John the Baptist. So we know that this isn't referring to heavenly beings that are watching over the cities, but to a person. You also notice that the letters also seem to be directed to these messengers. So it is likely that the messengers mentioned here are leaders from each churches. So if we move on. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Now on the surface, this seems like a, like a statement that's added just to confirm that this message comes from Jesus. But a closer look shows that this is much more than that. Now the emphasis is something that's kind of lost in translation from the Greek. But it's a statement that's full of empathy and understanding. It's a reminder that he has always been there. And that he always will be. It's a reminder that he suffered and he died. And a reminder that through all the trials they face, Jesus understands because he's been there. And lastly, it's a reminder that he is alive and that their faith is not in vain. Moving to verse 9. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. So again, Jesus is repeating from the previous verse that he knows and that he understands. Now, some versions in this verse, it starts with, I know your works, but most tend to leave this out. As in the earliest manuscripts that they found, it's just a, a footnote, and it's just generally considered to be an acknowledgement of their obedience through faith. Now, the NIV which this is from. This says afflictions. Other versions say oppression. And others say trials and tribulations. But none of these words, they really get across how bad things were for the Christians. The Greek word used here, oh man, <laughs> flipsis. And this is a word, it doesn't really have a meaning. It's a word that's used to convey an idea. And the idea of this word is of a grape that is being pressed to a level where the juice comes forth. <laughs> so it is talking about an immense amount of pressure. Now the Jews, they were targeted by the state and by the citizens. A Christian visitor to Smyrna named Paeonius, he 
wrote of his experience there. He, well, funny enough, he ended up being martyred there. Um, but he wrote about how one of the people he was traveling with was arrested and was given a very common punishment for Christian women. And that was of being forced to work in a brothel. Now, if we look at poverty, now, we know that it's unlikely that Smyrna's the only poor church. But it is the only one whose poverty is mentioned. So we know that the poverty is significant. And in fact, there are two Greek words which are used to translate to poverty. The first word, penia, it means nothing superfluous. So you have a roof over your head and you can eat, but you can't do anything else. But that's not the word that's used here. The word used here is patochia. And this means nothing at all. <laughs> the Christians of Smyrna were hunted, mocked, beaten by the state and by its citizens. And they had nothing. Sounds like a really grim position to be in. But this line ends with the comment, yet you are rich. <laughs> this is also something that's echoed in Corinthians. So if we just take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 3 to 10. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. Jesus is telling the church that in the things that really matter to him, their faithfulness, they were rich. And moving on. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, as mentioned earlier, Smyrna had quite a large population of Jews. But what is this line saying? Is it saying that all Jews are of the devil? Absolutely not. If we look back to Romans chapter 2, um, Paul, what Paul has to say on it. A person is not a Jew who is one only outward, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. 
Now a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Now the Jews in the Roman Empire, they had certain privileges. They had a large degree of freedom. They had influence over the city, and they had power. So it was quite frequent that people would become Jewish just for these entitlements. And these people were just outwardly Jewish. They didn't really follow God or his teachings. And it's these people that Jesus is talking about here. Now we also know that these Jews, non-Jews, they spread a fair amount of rumors about Christians. Because of communion, (laughs) they spread the rumor that Christians were cannibals. They ate the body and drank the blood of other people. Now, the most ironic rumor from the Jews was they called Christians atheists because they would not worship the Roman gods and they only believed in this single god. Which is a bit ironic from people who are exactly the same. And they were also accused of being politically disloyal because they refused to say Caesar is Lord. The Jews were also the loudest voices when it came to the trials of Christians, swaying the Roman officials to carry out the harshest of punishments. And you'll see this also in a number of times in the book of Acts, in chapters 13, 14, and 17, all talk about the Jews convincing the authorities to move against Christians. So this gives us a fuller picture of the afflictions that these Christians in Smyrna faced. Now in verse 10, wonderful verse. Do not be afraid, because things are going to get better. (laughs) Not quite. (laughs) Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Wow. (laughs) It's at this point it kind of makes you stop. You know, understanding how much pressure and torment these Christians were already under. And then Jesus says to you, it's going to get worse. (laughs) Now, I'm sure everyone has been in that wonderful situation where everything around you is completely going wrong and falling apart. And then when your phone rings or there's a knock at the door, your first reaction is, what the hell? What else can go wrong? So you can imagine that here in this, it's not not the most comforting thing to hear. Now, in his book, The Revelation of Jesus Christ, J. Willard Willis, awesome name, he described this about the church in Smyrna. He says, you can imagine that the Christians of Smyrna They were groups of families. There would have been elderly and there would have been children. 
all they had to do to alleviate their suffering was go to a temple, burn some incense, and say, Caesar is Lord. (coughs) They didn't even have to mean it. (laughs) But in doing so, they would have been able to work. They would have been able to get money. They would have been able to feed their families. But the Christians of Smyrna, they knew that their actions and their words that they spoke, they mattered to God. (coughs) And moving on. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Now, it's not something that's spoken of a great deal in church, but the devil is real. And he is actively trying to turn our focus away from God. The Smyrna Christians had managed to resist the allure of the city, this wealthy city that's full of distractions and earthly pleasures. Harassments and beatings had also failed to shake their faith. But now they were going to face the toughest of tests. Now when it says that, you're, that they were going to suffer persecution for 10 days, this isn't a literal 10 days. It's a, a common phrase at the time that just simply meant a short period of time. But this isn't good news. You think you're going to suffer, but it's not going to be for long. Or it's not really how the Romans worked. This time of imprisonment for the Romans, they didn't really have a prison system at all. It's generally, if you're imprisoned, they're just holding you until they're going to kill you. (laughs) So they knew that this wasn't going to be okay. This isn't just another test that's coming along. Be faithful, even to the point of death. Do you notice it's not saying, be faithful for the rest of your life? A better way to phrase it would be, be faithful even if it costs you your life. During the imprisonment, this test, this torture, this extreme pressure, remain faithful. But it's not all bad news. (laughs) If we just flick back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. I am the living one. I was dead and now look. I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. It may cost your life, but Jesus has authority over death. And it's Jesus who sets what happens next. And he says, and I will give you life as a victor's crown. (laughs) Now this isn't talking about a royal crown. Like that weird leafy thing that the Roman emperor wears. 
but it's a crown given to winners in a race. Um, the ancient Olympics were actually held in Smyrna a number of times. Now, straight away, I'm instantly reminded of Paul's teachings in Corinthians and Philippians about running a race and winning the prize. Now, in the New Testament, there are a number of different crowns that are actually mentioned. Paul talks about the crown of righteousness for those who desire intimacy with God. There's a crown of rejoicing for those who engage in evangelism. There's an incorruptible crown for those who demonstrate self-denial and perseverance. There's a crown of glory given to humble leaders. And of course, the crown of life given to those who endure trials. And this crown's also mentioned in James chapter 1. Now, it doesn't specifically say what exactly what these crowns are. But for me, reading the context of each of the different crowns, it suggests that the, the crown of life given to those under fierce oppression is a crown of freedom and a crown of peace. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. So again, you see that Jesus saying that to remain faithful is a victory. But the second death is, is a little bit of a weird phrase. It doesn't exist anywhere in the New Testament outside of Revelation. But it is said in Revelations chapters 20 and 21 that the second death is reserved for those who are not faithful. And again, if we turn to Romans, what Paul had to say, chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The faithful will never be separated from the love of God. <laughs> wow. <laughs> now, I was looking quite extensively at the history of the early church in Smyrna, and it is quite fascinating. The most famous story is the story of a guy called Polycarp. Has anyone ever heard of him? Awesome. He's a saint now. Um, but what we know from historical documents that Polycarp was a Christian in Smyrna. We know that he was a student of the Apostle John and that he traveled all around trying to meet as many people as he could who have met Jesus. At some stage, the apostles appointed him as bishop of the church in Smyrna. Now, 
There is a surviving letter that was written by Polycarp, and it was written to the Philippian church. And it's urging them not to surrender their faith to false teachers. Now in the year 155 AD, so about 60 years after the book of Revelation was written, Polycarp became aware that the Romans were actively seeking to arrest him. And that's not a good thing. So he retreated to a country house, and he occupied himself with constant prayer. During this time, he received a vision of his death. So he told his companions, I must be burned alive. A young man who knew his whereabouts was captured by the Romans, and he gave up Polycarp's location after being tortured. One of the officials who captured Polycarp asked him, What harm is there in saying Caesar is Lord and sacrificing to him, with the other ceremonies observed on such occasions, so as to make sure of safety? I shall not do as you advise me, he answered. Outraged by his response, the officials had him violently thrown from their chariot and taken to an arena for execution. Before the crowd, the Roman proconsul demanded again that he worship the emperor. And he replied, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul threatened him with burning. And Polycarp replied, You threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour, and after a little is extinguished. But you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. What are you waiting for? Bring forth what you will. <laughs> now the crowds went and fetched the wood to burn him. <laughs> and it is noted that the Jews were the most eager. Now this really brings emphasis to the Jews who were not Jews that's mentioned in Revelation. Because we know that the date of the execution was the 23rd of February. And this was a Saturday. <laughs> and genuine Jews would not have broken the Sabbath law to go and fetch wood for this execution. Polycarp prayed aloud to God. May I be accepted this day before you as an acceptable sacrifice, just as you, the ever-truthful God, have foreordained, revealed beforehand to me, and now have fulfilled. Now the rest of the story is taken from letters that are found that were circulated by Christians at the time. As the flame blazed forth in great fury, we to whom it was given to witness it beheld a great miracle. The fire did not seem to touch the bishop's body. Rather, they described it shaping itself into the form of an arch. It encompassed as by circle the body of the martyr. And he appeared within it not like flesh which is burnt, but as bread that is baked, or as gold and silver glowing in a furnace. Moreover, we perceived such a sweet odor coming from the flames, as if frankincense or some precious spices had been burning there. 
the executioners perceived that Polycarp's death was not going as planned. Losing patience, they ordered him to be stabbed to death. From the resulting wound, there came forth a dove and a great quantity of blood so that the fire was extinguished. Now, the Christians of Smyrna, they're an amazing example of what it means to keep your faith. Even under the worst circumstances. In our modern world, too often we compromise our faith. Whether it's to get our own way or to prevent embarrassment. But what we do and what we say, it matters to God. Jesus reminded the Smyrna church that he was with them, that he understands their trials, and that he would be with them forever. And the same is true today. Jesus stands with us. He understands our circumstances. But he is asking us to be faithful. You know, there's a phrase that I hear people say. <laughs> said it myself. <laughs> I'm not strong enough. But having strength, it doesn't mean that things just bounce off us. It means that we still get hurt. And it means that we still suffer. What it means is that we don't compromise when life stands against us. And waiting at the end for us is freedom and peace. A crown of life. <laughs> Let's just close our eyes.